0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
2: I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We decided it's high time we do an episode about Mary Jane.
0: Marijuana, things are happening.
2: That's right. This episode is about pot. We're exploring the rhetoric surrounding legalization in New York's recent gubernatorial primaries. And a cheesemonger turned cannabis consultant shares the tricks of the trade.
3: Great. So do you want to conquer the world? Do you want to have hazy eyes? Do you
2: want to... You know, just relax all day and be floaty. And we find out how one exemplary South Carolina farmer is trying his hand at a new crop. Every plant that comes up from seed is different. And so it's it's learning how the plant grows, how it responds, and then familiarizing myself and my senses with this plant. Plus, Hannah Forden and I taste test the hottest new cocktail ingredient, CBD. So subscribe to Meet and Three wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the newest episode of Meet and Three drops.
3: This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. I'm here today with Dave Chapman. Dave, thanks for being here.
4: Thank you, Lisa, and glad to be here.
3: Um, so, I am really excited to talk to you about um, your work as a farmer and the Real Organic Project and all these things you're working on. Um, I was thinking about our conversation, so the way that you and I met is I interviewed you for a story, um, a feature story on Eater that hasn't actually run yet, Um, but the story is about kind of these disagreements in the organic industry, and you and I had this long conversation about um, one aspect of, of those disagreements, but I was thinking maybe the place to start is you know, that term organic industry, I was sort of digging into it. And I was thinking when you started farming, was that even a thing? Was there an organic industry?
4: No, there there was no organic industry. (laughs) Uh, When I started, it was a long time ago, it was almost 40 years. And um, there was an organic movement. And to be honest, that's still how I think of it. Although now I recognize there is also an organic industry, but they aren't Necessarily, the same thing,
3: right? So, tell me about the movement. What What was that? What did that look like for you? Uh,
4: The movement has always been really fun and exciting, and just so interesting. Um, When I came to Vermont, I I was a young guy, and and uh, after doing various jobs, I started to farm, and I started. uh, (laughs) I was a true hippie. I actually <laughs> had a team of oxen that I'd raised and trained Wow and did that, you
3: gr- did you have farming experience? Did you grow up on a farm?
4: I actually did grow up on a dairy farm okay. in Pennsylvania down in Lancaster County, mm. um, but I never thought I'd be a farmer when I got to Vermont. all of a sudden it started to look really interesting um, and it's been interesting ever since so uh, I started growing vegetables I worked for a guy, Jake Guest, for a year and then I started on my own with my team of oxen <laughs> and uh, I was very fortunate in that um, I became pretty good friends with Elliot Coleman who worked at the, ran the farm project at the farm school just down the road and he, you know, he just shared his immense knowledge with me.
3: Mm, he's I, sort of a legend in organic farming these days.
4: He is a legend, and, yeah. and but deservedly so, yeah. you know, that the reality is just as good as as the myth. Um, mm-hmm. He's a gr- really good farmer and a very generous human being with his thinking and with his library and his research. Uh, when we start talking, we just get swept away.
3: Yeah, mm.
5: so many
4: interesting <laughs> ideas.
3: Yeah, and so and you call it a movement because you know I assume you must have some sort of philosophical connection to it. What can you explain? that a little bit?
4: Sure. Um, I I think it began as a movement really uh, about the 1930s and 40s. Um, A lot of it was propelled by the writing of somebody named Albert Howard. And uh, he had taken what he learned as an agricultural agent in uh, India and looked at what worked the best there. He was actually there to try and teach them uh, Western farming techniques, and mm. he came away learning more than he taught huh. and he, he saw that that the farmers who were uh, really uh, preserving the organic matter as a resource, uh, composting all the manure and all the agricultural waste and returning that to the land, were having much better outcomes than he was used to seeing. Mm and they're having healthier crops and healthier animals. And he came to believe also people who were part of that system, that the people were healthier, that, that, that the food that was produced in, in that biologically active soil was uh, much better for you.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And as one soil scientist said to me, the interesting thing is that in the, whatever it's been, 70 years, 80 years since then, almost all of the soil science has supported Albert Howard's observations. So he didn't have the kind of technology that we have now and didn't have the the hundreds of thousands of scientists who've been working on it, but his observations have proven to still be supported by science. Mm. So just we have more coherent explanations of why those bring about better outcomes.
3: Right. And so his thinking kind of just really spoke to you personally?
4: Yes. And it, 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 it was political in that um, he was, you know, right after World War II is when uh, chemical agriculture exploded. Right. And it became what is called conventional yeah. agriculture. But it, it wasn't conventional before that. And it exploded as a result of the technologies developed for the war. And,
3: right. A lot and, of those companies making chemical weapons are the same ones that still make the chemicals for agriculture same, today.
4: Same companies and, you know, the same roots of uh, chemistry for uh, all of that. And, of course, also the the creation of nitrogen, which started really in World War I for making bombs. Hmm. And they developed a process for synthesizing nitrogen. And that became the basis of the fertilizer industry. So, um, you know, all, uh, those, those chemical fertilizers uh, had an immediate, uh, apparently positive response in agriculture. And they discovered if they put down these very available nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium fertilizers, the yields went way up. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, it's a complicated subject, but what happens is that managing the organic matter gets neglected. Those fertilizers are actually have some biocidal qualities for the life in the soil. Mm-hmm. So the old uh, natural mechanisms for uh, a plant getting its fertility, which we can talk about if you want, mm-hmm. um, got short circuited, got suppressed as a result you have problems. You have problems with diseases. You have problems with insects. And that requires more biocides to be brought in. And, uh, and then, of course, we can't leave out herbicides. So uh, the kind of the final blow was uh, instead of cultivating for weeds, um, they spray for weeds and spray massively. I mean, by far the biggest biocide being used in the world is glyphosate, Mm -hmm. which is actually registered as an uh, antibiotic, not as a herbicide. Yeah. And and because it does does kill the life in the soil.
3: Right. Huh. Well, and I mean, I think recently glyphosate is, there's finally some attention being called to its effects on people and the planet, but that's really only kind of started in the past couple of years, I would say, right, where people are more aware of it.
4: Yeah. Well, yeah. well, the uh, you know, when we go up against these industries, we're really battling giants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's really going up against Goliath. Uh, just tremendous, un- unbelievable amount of money. More money is spent uh, lobbying in Congress for these food giants, these agricultural giants, than is spent on the defense industry mm-hmm. for lobbyists. So... We're up against something very serious and powerful.
3: Yeah, and so the way you describe it, it's kind of like you—you you got into farming, you felt it was an organic movement, and it's almost like this—this this movement was kind was forming alongside the, the push for industrial agriculture. So like as agriculture was getting more and more consolidated and industrial and chemical, people like you were saying, no, that's not the right way, and building the organic movement as kind of like. The antithesis.
4: Of yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, the organic movement had been going on for thirty years by the time I. I what <laughs> found what out year about did it. you start farming? Yeah. Uh, would have been uh, around uh, nineteen eighty. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Albert Howard was going in England in the forties, and J.R. Rodale brought it over from there. He was a real fan of Rodale's, mm-hmm. and over in England, Eve Balfour started the Soil Association. Of course in Germany biodynamics was strong so it was it was happening internationally and there there was uh, there was bad traditional farming and there was great traditional farming and mm. probably the best traditional farming came out of Southeast Asia
5: hmm.
4: where you know they farmed uh, the same land for um, four, thousand years sustainably wow. and that was land that wasn't necessarily just being renewed every year with flooding. It was land that they were just very careful with how they handled manure. They were very careful with how they handled crop residue. And they brought these, uh, the, this organic matter back to the soil. And the reason that's so valuable, I mean, there, there are a number of reasons, but one critical thing is that it becomes the food source for an uh, enormous amount of life.
5: Mm-hmm. You
4: know, all these bacteria and fungi living in the soil are living off that. It's a natural cycle that existed long before humans. So plants photosynthesize. They take the energy from the sun and they exude about a third of that energy yeah. out to feed the life in the soil. The other two-thirds they use to, use to build their own bodies. And they're feeding the life in the soil and the soil life is returning that gift by bringing minerals in very appropriate balance. It's It's something that we can't, Replicate, we can, we can, we know how to feed a plant so it will grow, but we don't really know how to plant feed a plant so it will be truly healthy. Mm. And just like us, if we eat a lot of Big Macs, it will get big,
3: <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs>
4: <laughs> but that isn't shouldn't be mistaken for health.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, metaphor, actually. Um, well, so let's let's talk about soil. I mean, so you st- you're starting to get into it already. It's kind of the yeah. topic right um and so you have been involved in this movement um a, another sort of movement related to organic in the past uh few years right um that is called keep soil inorganic um can you talk yeah. a little bit about how that got started
4: yeah so um back in 2010 uh, I, I was completely not involved with any kind of... Oh, yeah, of, there
3: was this whole long period where you yeah. were just farming, I just right? farming. <laughs>
4: I raised my kids, yeah. and um, and I loved my life very much. And I, I was really distant from any kind of movement. Of course, I'd started there, but I just was farming. And this happens when people get into farming. It's a lot of work. The margins are thin. And uh, it really takes people's attention. And that's the reason why it's hard to get farmers really active and involved because they're just busy. But um, I did and I did know that there had been a a small debate, a quiet debate in um, the National Organic Program about whether or not to certify uh, hydroponic production. Hydroponic production means that the plant is getting virtually all of its nutrition from a liquid fertilizer feed. Mm -hmm. So when when you irrigate it, you have blended in nutrients and it is sort of the epitome of conventional agriculture one of the soil scientists walter yena whom i uh, have studied with and really respect just calls conventional agriculture hydroponic production <laughs> and and because you know in conventional agriculture they're just feeding the plant that's the goal right and the the kind of famous Um, Slogan of organic agriculture is feed the soil, not the plant. And the idea is if you take care of all that life in the soil, it will take care of the plant, and the outcome will be really positive in terms of health and sustainability. Mm -hmm. So um, it was a debate. Well, if we use a natural fertilizer, if we use fish emulsion or something, and feed a plant with that, and that's how the plant gets all of its nutrition. Could we call that organic? And most people in the organic community, most farmers, most of the pioneers all say, no, of course not. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a substitution for a chemical fertilizer. But it has nothing to do with plugging in to that soil ecology that you know, really the complexity is beyond us. We, there's so much about it we don't understand. Mm-hmm. But we understand enough to know that we should try to work with it and enhance it and protect it and support it, as opposed to replacing it with our hubris. Um, so this debate happened. In 2010, the advisory board to the USDA on organic matters issued a 14-to-1 decision, no, hydroponic cannot be called organic. And I thought it was good. That's all done. Mm. And then about... And, sorry, I just yeah. want to
3: quickly just ch- jump in and say... And that I think that decision came down because there's actually a, a line, right, in the organic standard, um, the federal standard, that says, like, soil health is a... Um, one of the requirements. Is yes. That correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay.
4: The, the 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 whole law is based. I mean, the, the, all the standards are based on the, the law that was passed called the Organic Food Production Act. Right. And and we'll just call it OFPA. OFPA. So <laughs> Every, OFPA yes. is very clear about this.
5: Yeah.
4: They they really they got it pretty right. You got to say it's pretty impressive mm. um, that the U.S. government actually passed a law that did a pretty good job of defining organic and trying Mm. to protect it. And the National Organic Program was created to protect organic and to ensure that there's transparency. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, um, the opposite has happened, and especially in the last five years that has been sort of snowballing due to the enormous amount of money that is now being made in the organic market
5: mm-hmm.
4: when I started I was I was one of the very first farms in Vermont we had our own little state certification I think there were 17 farms the first year and there was no market mm. <laughs> right nobody was getting into organic because it, you got rich right. it, it was we were building something and we were excited about it we believed in it and uh, we still believe in it. Nothing has changed about that. What has changed is that the USDA label is coming to represent more and more hydroponic production. And uh, the hydroponic organic growers, now being certified, claim that they now represent a billion dollars in annual sales of hydroponic tomatoes, berries, lettuce, basil. You know, it's It's a long list, peppers, Mm -hmm. cucumbers, and growing rapidly. uh, At the rate we're going soon, all the certified organic berries in stores are going to be hydroponic.
3: Right. So, and I I cut you off, I'm sorry. but um, So just to make sure people understand exactly how things happen. So uh, initially they said that hydroponics would not be certified organic, right? And then there was this sort of multi, multi-year period where people like you were kind of fighting against, were um, seeing that things were being certified. Yeah, and... that's
4: exactly yeah. right. Okay. We, we suddenly started to see a whole bunch of hydroponic tomatoes from Mexico carrying the USDA seal mm-hmm. and the organic seal. We we're like, what's going on? I thought, I thought we worked this out. Mm-hmm. And um, so a friend of mine, Davey Miskel, and I, reached out. We started a couple petitions. (laughs) We didn't know how to do anything. Mm. But, you know, we got some quite well-known people to sign those petitions. Mm. Um, So even though I think we had 500 farmers and a thousand civilians Mm -hmm. signed, but the civilians included Michael Pollan and Elliot Coleman and Dan Barber and um, just people who are very prominent in uh, the organic movement or the food movement. And because of that, um, the National Organic Program was about to make a final approval of hydroponic, but they pulled back and they were like, uh-oh, okay, we've got a PR problem here. Mm. And, um, and that really started a national and, and ultimately international debate, um, which is still going on. Mm. Um, and at the same time, the debate was going on more and more hydroponic stuff was getting certified mm-hmm. and uh i they set up a task force because that's what you do when you're stalling and <laughs> she a task force <laughs> right. and let's study it some more so i was actually at first the task force was going to be limited to hydroponic producers and there was an outcry so they put five of us soil types on mm. and i was i was one of, i was the only soil grower you know commercial farmer who mm-hmm. was on it and that met for, I don't know, nine months or something, and came out with a very divided report. All the hydroponic people said hydroponic should be allowed, and all the soil people said it shouldn't be. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't... There was one major thing that was learned by me in that report. I One wonderful thing is I got... To, I just interviewed a lot of soil scientists, and I said, well, should hydroponic be called organic? And they all said, No. And I said, why? Mm -hmm. And I got such, you know, really interesting answers about the life in the soil and what those processes are. Um, But the other thing that I learned, and it came out just three weeks before the end of the task force, is that Driscoll's Berries was growing a lot of hydroponic production. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much, but it was over a thousand acres, and that's a lot.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: And um, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of berries. And nobody knew that. I mean, I mean, nobody knew it. Nobody on the task force knew it. Hmm. And it came out as a case study from their certifier who was on the, on, the, on the task force. And in nine months, there hadn't been a mention of this, but it turned out that they were the biggest hydroponic producer getting certified organic in the world. Mm. And they were the elephant in the room. And they were the reason that all of this happened. Right. You know, if it hadn't been for them, I think we would have won fairly easily. Yeah. But they, they really are a big company. They're a $2.5 billion company. They're international. They're on all five continents. Mm-hmm. They're the major berry producer in the United States and in the EU. Producer, vendor, they, they mostly contract with people to grow for them, and then they, then they sell it. So yeah. we, we were facing a real Goliath once again.
3: Right. Yeah. So, so let me play devil's advocate for a minute and, and kind of take take their side and, and sort of sure. talk about the the debate that we're really kind of, we're talking about this one side, but I think the other side is that um, Driscoll's are just companies and people that see um, hydroponics as a valuable um, resource when it comes to growing the food system or may even potentially making it more sustainable. Um, Is, you know, one, people would say that um, hydroponics, um, you don't have to use chemical pesticides like you do if it's... Yeah. quote, conventional agriculture. That's not true. That's not true. Okay. Um, So let me, let me, so that's, that's one argument. They say if we're not, if we're not using pesticides, we should be able to certify it organic, right? Or chemical pesticides, I should clarify. Um, And then also that, you know, you're, you've got this controlled environment. So especially in places like on the East coast where we are um, in the winter, when there's no access to things like greens and tomatoes and berries, um, it's this way that you can potentially grow, Um, A lot of healthy food, um, regardless of the weather. Um, And especially, I think, with the way that the climate is changing, people are afraid that it's going to be hard to grow things. Um, And so they see this controlled space as a way to kind of, right? Sure. So, like, let's dig into that a little. Let's dig into that.
4: Good. Just to say, it's just untrue that hydroponic production doesn't use pesticides or doesn't have insect problems. They Mm -hmm. do. And uh, on the task force, we toured one hydroponic greenhouse, beautiful greenhouse, five mm-hmm. acres of lettuce. I really have a great respect for the, the person who started it. Mm. Um, he, he was a first generation immigrant. His parents had come from Mexico, wonderful guy, beautiful operation, just not organic. Mm. And uh, he had a spray robot and they did regular sprays for aphids, he had zero tolerance for aphids in the market. I think that, you know, it's just, let's talk about the truth and not, mm-hmm. not talk about mythology here. So they do have insect problems and they do use pesticides to deal with them. Um, of course, if they can use beneficial insects, they do. But if they can't, then they'll spray. Um, the big tomato producer on the, on the task force definitely had to spray, spray regularly. So... Yeah. Um, the question about environmentally is it is it uh is it more sustainable than growing in the field? Mm. Uh, absolutely not. I, I'm a greenhouse grower. Mm. Right. So again, we need to separate hydroponic from growing in a greenhouse. Okay. I grow in a greenhouse, it's a beautiful two and a half acre glass greenhouse, and I grow in the soil in that greenhouse. Right? There's no barrier between the topsoil and the subsoil and the bedrock.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And that's done in all uh, organic production in Europe. And it can be done on large scale if, if you want to. There are 20 and 30 acre greenhouses. There are 300 acre hydroponic greenhouses. So it, scale can be daunting even. The question is, is that more sustainable? It's definitely more energy intensive. So... The idea that somehow you use less energy because you're in a greenhouse or in an urban box, in mm-hmm. an insulated box where you're providing 100% of the light artificially and then having to air condition to get rid of the waste heat. No, there's a there's yeah. a carbon footprint. And we might decide that's acceptable or we might not. But again, let's just talk about the truth and be transparent and mm-hmm. not... not uh, have crazy talk about, you know, that that it uses less energy. It doesn't. Yeah. All right? It's very productive.
3: Right, because they can grow a lot more in a a lot less space. Yes, and that's
4: true for us in a greenhouse, too. It's much more Uh. productive than the field, but it's even more productive to be hydroponic. And by productive, we're talking about yield in terms of pounds per acre. Right. Right? But if we look at health per acre, if we look at food quality... I would say it's less productive. Mm. And the question of, is there a place in the world for hydroponic production? Well, regardless of what you or I say, it's a reality. Um, Virtually all greenhouse vegetables in the world uh, and in Europe, all greenhouse vegetables are grown hydroponically. And that's, you know, thousands of acres, thousands of acres of greenhouse vegetables are grown hydroponically and the reason that they're grown hydroponically that happened in the last generation is that they're more productive in terms of pounds per acre it's a simpler system they reduced a lot of the complexity soil systems very complex right and you have to really actually be pretty uh, skillful working with it in order not to have bad outcomes in order to have good outcomes Simple system's easy. It's, it's like McDonald's. They've made a simple system. Uh, they can train somebody pretty easily to run a McDonald's franchise. Mm-hmm. But the quality of the food is not great. And I think the same is true of industrial agriculture. Mm. And, you know, we, we, I think we need to talk about CAFOs as well as hydros. But, yeah. but uh, in, in hydros, they make a very simple system. They've taken as much complexity out as they can. And make it that I open this bag, I pour it in this tank i, I and i don't mean to make it sound that it 's easy it's still not easy, but it 's a lot easier. Mm-hmm. We have insect problems because our nutrition isn 't quite right, and we have a spray for that mm-hmm. um, so is the food uh quality actually better in a healthy soil? Yes, I believe so it's a little difficult even to test for although not impossible. Mm. Um, they, they've done a lot of testing of organic versus, uh, conventional and, um, the European did a, Europeans did a meta study and it, it showed that organic food is better, but not for really easy things to test for. We're talking about, you know, these bioflavonoids and, Mm. and, um, these are the things that make you healthy and it's, it's. Easy to miss. Some of the things we don't even know what to test for yet. Right. Right? Ergothionine, for example, just one simple example. mm. Nobody knew or cared about ergothionine 25 years ago. Now it's understood to be a fairly significant anticarcinogen. And you only get it in soil production. You don't get any in hydroponic production. Right. What else are we losing? Nobody has any idea.
3: Right. There's sort of this... Complex system that nature has set up. That you're saying we, you know, we're not even really sure how it w- works. At the we're, end of the day, we just kind of steward it, right? We're and,
4: babies. Yeah. We're babies. We're talking about a system that co-evolved over 350 million years. Yeah. And this amazing, amazing relationship between plants and soil and the atmosphere, and um, the idea that we're going to game the system and be able to figure out. Everything, because we we evolved as part of that system. Yeah. So that is the natural food for us to be healthy with. Right. And, um, you know, when I was younger, I kind of thought of health food as something that happened in these little strange health food stores and people with white socks (laughs) worked in there. But I think that there's just tremendous truth to that, you know, that, that it really is important. Linus Pauling was right, you know, that. 80% 80% of our health is based on what we eat, mm-hmm. right? And the other 20% is probably based on exercise and lifestyle choices.
5: Yeah.
4: But that's a big deal, and it's just pushed aside all the time by big economic interests who are making money off of what they're convincing you to do.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I need to cut you off because we actually do have to take a break um, for a word from our sponsor. I'm getting so into this conversation. I almost forgot. Um, So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about um, the Real Organic Project and um, whatever else we have time for. Um, We'll be right back.
1: In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
3: All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. I'm here with Dave Chapman, an organic farmer from Vermont, and we've been talking about soil and um, hydroponics and all kinds of things. Um, One thing that came up before the break that we didn't, we sort of glossed over, um, was you mentioned um, CAFOs, these confined animal feeding operations inorganic, which I think is. Most people would hear that and say, that doesn't exist in organic. Right, right, right. Um, right. So, so can you talk a little bit about that?
4: So um, when I got drawn into this debate about hydroponic, I, my experience had been entirely through the eyes of a Vermont farmer. Mm-hmm. And Vermont Organic Farmers, our certifying agency is wonderful. They will never certify hydroponic, and they would never certify a CAFO. A CAFO is a CAFO and that stands for concentrated animal feeding operation oh,
3: i said confined i it's did confined. too but, but
4: but the usda defines that as a concentrated animal okay. feeding operation and i had no awareness that this was something that was encroaching inorganic i barely had awareness that it was something that had become sort of it's becoming a norm in american agriculture and um very quickly, uh, small farms are being pushed out. I'm talking conventional farms now, Mm -hmm. are being pushed out. Small dairy farmers are going out of business right now massively in this country. And they're being replaced by these CAFOs. And the CAFOs are um, just like hydroponics, they're more uh, economically viable because um, they don't um, have to pay for the unintended consequences. Right, they're not paying for the pollution that they're creating. They're not paying for the health problems that they're creating. So they don't have to fence. They don't have to have pasture land. They don't have to move the cattle in and out. They just park them, park them in the in the barn and the warehouse, and bring the food to them. And this is not how uh, a cow evolved to be healthy. So they don't. They aren't healthy. They they have maybe a three year lifespan, and then. It's off to the slaughterhouse, and um, it's a tough life. It's an even tougher life for a chicken or a, a pig that grows in a hog cafo. So, what I discovered as I got into this debate is it, it was worse than I thought. Mm-hmm. And um, cafos are being certified as organic now. Um, the in dairy, the biggest, the biggest dairy producer in the country is a company called aurora Mm -hmm. and uh washington post did a searing expose on the colorado aurora but they've got some in texas as well and they're building more so even at the same time that family farms are being pushed out of business they, they just can't afford to um stay in business at the price they're getting paid for the milk companies like aurora are building more dairies and you know uh The six remaining organic dairies that I know of in Texas are all CAFOs, and there might be some little family farm I don't know about, Mm -hmm. and I apologize to them, but the the six that are reported are all CAFOs. And they produce, I think, 1.3 times the milk that the 450 organic dairy farms in Wisconsin produce. So if you think about that, that's a staggering thing. Because the farms in Wisconsin aren't tiny; right. they aren't hobby farms. They're working farms. Four hundred fifty of them. These six farms, which average about twenty-three million dollars of income, uh, you know, sales per year per farm in Texas, are outproducing them. Those farms shouldn't be certified. They clearly don't meet the standards.
3: Yeah, and but how are they getting certified? Because the the standard does. I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I think like for dairy for instance it clearly says that the um cows have to have some access to pasture
4: they must have access right. to pasture well the way they get around that is they have some door open somewhere and say mm. they have access but they don't go out to pasture yeah they couldn't in a kfo you get a kfo with like you know 16 or 20,000 cows and they're supposed to go out to pasture and back and typically those places will milk three times a day they would have to be sprinting to get out to pasture. For that many cattle to get to pasture and back again, it would take so many acres. It's a physical impossibility for them to actually meet the real spirit and letter of the law. Mm-hmm. And yet, USDA has investigated and said, no, they're okay. And it's just the way, it, same with the, the CAFO egg production.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: The Miles McAvoy told me that if the new animal welfare standard which was just thrown out by Trump's uh, USDA, if it had been enforced, had been enacted, 80%—this is an intense number, Lisa— 80% of the certified organic eggs in America would be decertified.
3: And that's a crazier number because it's only a few companies that we're talking about.
4: It's only a few companies. But they're producing
3: just so many, those those few companies
4: that— and it's yeah. really important to to know and for me to say most certified organic farms are real organic. Right. Right. We don't want to end this conversation thinking, well, you know, organic's just a load of crap. There are thousands and thousands of real organic farms in America, and they are really organic. But there are a handful of CAFOs and hydros, which are making billions of dollars. My, my last estimate was about $7 billion of CAFO hydro and fraudulent grain import. You know, yeah. That's a, another thing. We, we, don't, we don't have we time don't have for, time that, for that, So So, you know, there's, there's some big cheaters, and they have a lot of money, mm-hmm. and that means they can buy a lot of influence, and they do. Yeah. And they buy the best lobbyists. They hire them. And they're out there promoting their, their case, you know, with, with Congress, and they're winning. Mm-hmm. So...
3: And so you have a response to this, um, a project we you're do. working on right we now. We
4: um, Somebody asked me, I was giving a public talk at a rally, and somebody called out and said, what can we do? And I didn't have an answer. I was like, I'm sorry, I don't know anything you can do. But so I thought that's not a good enough answer. So we do have something. Mm-hmm. After we lost a big vote uh, in Jacksonville, Florida last fall, I went back to the Vermont. The hydroponics vote. It was the big yeah. hydro mm-hmm. vote, yeah. And it was a perfect example of total reversal of uh, the position of this advisory board Mm -hmm. in seven years, and that was just about influence. I'm not saying that they're getting little bags of money, it was just their brains got warped, right? They Mm -hmm. didn't understand what organic actually meant. And it was the wrong people had been selected by the Secretary of Agriculture to make this decision. So I went back to Vermont, we got a bunch of farmers together, and we said, what are we going to do? Are we going to do nothing or are we going to do something? Everybody said we're going to do something. And what we decided is that we would create, after a lot of discussion, <laughs> an add-on label to represent Real Organic. And it's called the Real Organic Project. And this year we've got a pilot project and it, we decided to make it national, not just Vermont, because we were getting farmers from around the country saying, please... Vermont can do it without Oklahoma, but Oklahoma can't do it without Vermont. Mm. We need to get together. And we agreed. So we've got 50 farms around the country, all kinds of farms, dairy farms, you know, hog farms, um, vegetable farms, berry farms, tree farms, um, grain farms. And um, it's a start. It's a start. And you can go to, keep, uh, to realorganicproject.org. On, the, on a website and uh, check in and see what we're doing.
3: So it'll, it'll be a label that's kind of an add-on to the USDA organic seal, correct? That's right. Right. So people will have to first be certified organic, and then you'll come in and look at what they're doing and say it's in line with these even sort of higher standards or maybe they're not even necessarily higher you're just saying they're actually following they're actually being enforced <laughs> right. Right. okay um
4: they're the they're the standards that we meant to have and that we thought we had mm-hmm. yeah
3: yeah so how is I, someone um who is going to see this label on a product um i guess are, are you going to be doing anything in terms of like educating people about the label, what it means. I, you know, I, I think I spend a lot of time, um, trying to, um, teach people, um, you know, what these kind of terms mean and what they, and people get really confused and, Absolutely, you know, and so I guess, is there, is it going to be even more confusing as we add more labels?
4: You know, that's one of the great, um, complaints about starting this label Yeah, is that people are only going to be more confused. And my response is if if people aren't confused, they're not paying attention, (laughs) right? They should be confused. Right now there's some really talented, high, well-paid people who are working full-time to confuse people and to make it that this is really complicated, confusing. And for that reason, it is confusing. But I I don't think the issues are... I think the thing that... uh, let me say the Real Organic Project is intended as an educational effort, mm. more than a branding or a labeling effort. We've we got to have a label, right? It's got to be that you can go to Park Slope Co-op and be able to tell, well, are these eggs really organic? Is this chicken really organic? You know, And you, you might be able to trust the co-op to tell that to you, but most stores you can't trust. Yeah. And they don't know, and they don't care. And so how are we going to reach out to people and connect people with real organic farmers? Because people want that. Mm-hmm. That's why they're buying organic. They're paying They're paying a premium, and they're being taken advantage of often. And I always buy organic in a store, of course, but I know that until I get a label, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so that's the purpose of this. The, what you're talking about people do need to become better educated because this is an important issue. It's important for your personal health. It's important for your kids' health. But it's also important for climate health, planet health. You know, if we're going to survive, I believe agriculture is critical.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: We've got to have a a more sane agriculture. And so, um, to quote Meg Wheatley, we're trying to create some islands of sanity. And if we can do that, we know that the idea can spread. It has spread. Right now, people are spending $50 billion a year on organic produce, food, products. That's because they care. They, you know, mm-hmm. People are getting the idea. And it's growing rapidly. It's just that right now, there are large sharks in the water taking advantage of people mm. and feeding on their really positive impulses. So... Um, the the purpose of the Real Organic Project is to create greater transparency mm-hmm. and greater integrity so people can get what they want to get.
3: Yeah. And I, I, I really, I feel like this whole time we've been kind of hitting on little, little um, notes about money and um, the economics of, of farming and, you know, that would, to really get into it, we'd have to have a whole other episode. But you know, we sort of talking about these big companies that are creating these systems that um, you believe are not sustainable and are just to kind of um, make as much money as possible as quickly as possible. And then on the other side, we have these small farmers who are doing things um, right, right, from, from your perspective. And I guess one thing I've been thinking about through this conversation is a lot of farmers are, especially the small ones are struggling right now, right? They're really struggling to make, um, even make ends meet. I mean, I talk to farmers who are, you know, working in the fields and they're not even making minimum wage. They're organic. They're doing CSA. They're doing all these things like the quote unquote right way. And they're not making a living at it. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering from you, like, is it possible to, for farmers to make a really good living doing things the right way? Um,
4: well, yes.
5: I,
3: I, <laughs> that was I, a long question, no, but i sort of with I think it's, I think the it's possible. It's
4: a big issue, and, and this is something that we all face. I want to say a couple of things. One yes. is not all large companies are bad. Of course. I mean, I think uh, Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's are just two companies, Nature's Path, that, that um, have really put tremendous energy into actually helping to build a sane food system Mm -hmm. so to name that i agree that um most good farming is going to come from smaller family farms and whether they can stay in business is is up to us everybody i like david browner once said everybody is a farmer and your plate is your farm, Mm. and your fork is your pitchfork, and what you put on that plate will decide how food is grown in this country. So it does require a fairly high level of awareness, and that awareness is growing. People are becoming more sophisticated, and they're getting the connections between how the food is grown, what it means politically, what it means economically— you know, I think that, that the conversation, as complex as it is, 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 is improving. The conversation is getting better. Mm. What you're doing on the show is part of that conversation. What I'm doing here talking is part of that conversation. We all have power. If everybody who shopped at Whole Foods walked in and said, are these tomatoes hydroponic or are they grown in the soil? If everybody did that in New York in one day, mm. th- the whole... The whole system changes. I promise you. Yeah. If fifty people went into every supermarket in America and said, "Are these tomatoes grown hydroponically or are they grown in the soil?" We win overnight, mm. right? If everybody went in and said, "Are these eggs from a CAFO or did these chickens actually go outside every day?"
5: Mm-hmm.
4: They won't know the answer. They won't. But if fifty people ask them, they're going to start finding out in a hurry. Yeah. So we have power. It's. We, we're not aware of that power, and it's hard to organize that power
5: mm-hmm.
4: and that's why we have these conversations so that people become a little more aware and a little more concerned, a little more involved yeah and as they do that, the economic shift one thing that Michael Pollan said is you know we we can't afford cheap food <laughs> it's a beautiful line, yeah, right, because we're paying for it there's no free ride here it's it's If everybody who works at Driscoll's has to be on food stamps in order to, you know, feed their families, and they work hard, Mm -hmm. right? Something is wrong with that. And who's paying for the food stamps? We are.
3: Right. So
4: are we... Is the food actually that cheap? I think not.
3: No, and we're paying for it in, you know, dealing with natural disasters. That That's are... right.
4: The flooding, the right. you know, all, all of that. And we're paying for it in the climate change mm-hmm. and paying for it in whether our kids will have a world to live in.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: So uh, health care, my God, you know, we spend so much on health care and yet we don't have better health. Right. You know, so... Is, it's hard because these things, we you know, we have a culture in which just give me the bottom line.
3: Yeah.
4: And the trouble is the bottom line, the real bottom line is much more complicated than that.
3: But so we, we have to finish up. But I, the last thing I want to ask you is, are you optimistic about the state of the food system or the future of the food system? I'm,
4: I'm hopeful. I'm not sure I'm optimistic, but, you know, what I believe is that we can all change our islands of sanity we can we can create our choices um, and good good things do spread as well as bad things mm-hmm. so you know there's the the good wolf and the bad wolf and the question is which wolf are you going to feed right and so we need to feed the good wolf
3: <laughs> <laughs> all right on that note i think we're going to uh finish up thank you so much for being here dave i really appreciate it
4: thank you lisa it was a pleasure
3: Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. We'll see you next week.
5: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter,